everyone. You're listening to Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Rob Lott. And this is the weekly podcast where health affairs editors get together and catch up about the latest in health policy news and uh, <laughs> get together and catch up about the latest <laughs> health policy news. And this week, we are weighing in on a new law expected to give rise to some of the most significant changes to healthcare policy in the U.S. since the Affordable Care Act. And I'm, of course, talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law by President Biden on Tuesday, racking up a major legislative win for the administration. So economists aren't really convinced that it's going to drive down inflation. But what we do know is that this is a $750 billion package with provisions that are going to impact not only healthcare, but the energy and environmental sectors as well through things like direct appropriations, new programs, changes to the tax code. And it follows some other big legislative items that we've seen, like the American Rescue Plan and the Infrastructure Bill. But this law has garnered a lot of attention in its own right, in part because lawmakers, you know, struggled for months to reach a deal. And now that it's come to fruition, naturally, I think people really want to cut through the rhetoric to understand the kinds of changes that might be coming their way, Rob. That's right, Leslie. As you say, this is a pretty big bill, uh, and we're certainly not the first people to be talking about it or digging into the details, but I thought it might be useful if you and I sort of zeroed in on three key areas of the law that might be interesting to uh, health affairs readers and and listeners. Let's do it. All right. So uh, one key provision in the law, uh, Leslie, was to extend an increase in the Affordable Care Act premium subsidies by another three years. Now, just as a reminder of how we got here, uh, some context When the Affordable Care Act became law in 2010, it offered subsidies, otherwise known as premium tax credits, to cover insurance purchased in the marketplaces, and these uh, premiums were targeted at people with low incomes. But pretty soon thereafter, it became clear that these subsidies fell short somewhat in two key ways um, that if policymakers were serious about making a dent and the number of uninsured would have to really fix. One of those issues was that the subsidies could really be bigger, and the other is that um, more people could be eligible. And so Congress actually already addressed this issue last year with the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act, which you mentioned, also known as ARPA, uh, the last big COVID stimulus package uh, enacted just uh, two months after President Biden took office. So ARPA uh, made at least two key changes to the premium tax credits. First, it eliminated a subsidy cliff, which was created under the Affordable Care Act, um, that would cut people off uh, from help if their income exceeded 400% of the federal poverty line. And this left many middle-income people with high premiums, like crazy high premiums. And uh, after last year's legislation, Um, those people now could be eligible for subsidies if the cost of premiums exceeded 8.5% of their household income. Yeah, and thanks to that increase um, in kind of the size and the availability of those tax credits, we know that enrollment in those marketplace plans went 
up. It went it went way up, right? Yeah, re- record levels. Uh, according to Katie Keith, our heroic forefront author, and I'll just take a moment to uh, plug her latest rapid analysis of the new law. Um, and our listeners should be able to find a link to her piece in the show notes. According to Katie's uh, latest article, quote, of the 5.2 million people that have gained coverage since 2020, nearly half, about 2 million adults, enrolled in marketplace coverage thanks in part to improved affordability under ARPA. That's last year's law. And so that was good news at the time, but uh, the boost that it provided under the law was set to expire at the end of this year, 2022, which would have likely led to millions of Americans suddenly hitting that cliff again and being unable to afford coverage. And all of that, Leslie, uh, it's been a long road, brings us back to today and the new law, which extends the extension, if you will, of the subsidies for another three years. And what about the people who were already eligible for premium tax credits? Yeah, last year's law also made those subsidies more generous in such a way that it made it possible for more lower income people to enroll in free or nearly free silver plans. And now the new law, the IRA, keeps those more generous subsidies in place. And the timing, I think, seems really important here as we head into open enrollment in the fall. Yeah, Leslie, this summer, insurers and marketplace administrators were looking ahead to open enrollment with a lot of uncertainty before this law passed. And these subsidies, or rather the size of the subsidies, they were a big question mark uh, for the insurers, and it was really wreaking havoc with their enrollment projections. So now with the extension, it brings a lot more stability to the marketplaces. And Okay, so Leslie, the premium tax credits, that's just one piece of the new law, though, right? Another one has to do with the prices that Medicare pays for drugs. Yeah, and there are actually several important changes related to prescription drugs that definitely, I think, have the potential to reshape aspects of our health care and how affordable it is. We know that a lot of people say they're concerned about the rising cost of prescription drugs. It's a really high visibility issue, and this law advances some pretty significant reforms around drug pricing, um, as you said, although you know we shouldn't necessarily rule out the, con- the commercial insurance market. There could be some spillover effects there. But these provisions that I'm going to talk about, by and large, are going to benefit people who participate in the Medicare program. So arguably, um, the most dramatic change is that under the new law, the federal government will be allowed to negotiate with drug manufacturers to set the price for certain drugs under the prescription drug benefit in the Medicare program, something that has until now um, actually been prohibited. Okay, so what would that process look like? So we'd expect the Department of Health and Human Services to take the lead on these price negotiations. And the first step is identifying which drugs Medicare spends the most on. And then they'll narrow down that list to 10 drugs whose prices will be negotiated initially, um, with more drugs being added to that list later on, such that, you know, several years from now, the price of up to 60 drugs could be negotiated by 2029. And in addition to the price negotiations, there are also these new inflation-based rebates that require drug companies to issue a rebate to the Medicare program if they increase the price of the medication faster than the general inflation rate, which, you know, theoretically restricts how much and how quickly prices can go up. 
Okay, so Leslie, price negotiation, I know we've been talking about this for years, really, since mm-hmm. the, the original uh, Part D program was established. Do we know what kind of impact it will have now now that the the negotiations have been put in place? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's precise, but just you know, to give you a sense, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that half of all Medicare covered prescriptions saw price increases that outpaced inflation in just the last two or three years. So it would appear, at least, that these rebates could have some pretty far-reaching implications if you if you factor in those numbers. Um, but you asked about impact, and another thing that we should be aware of is that those Medicare Part D benefits are actually also getting a pretty substantial overhaul. And there are a couple of provisions that would reduce the amount that beneficiaries are spending. Um, you know, for one example, their out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs are going to be capped now at $2,000 a year. And um, we're also going to see limits put in place on how much Part D plans can increase their premiums from year to year. So, you know, there, there are big changes on the way. That being said, patience is really going to be key here. These policy reforms are going to be phased in gradually over a longer period of time. So we won't see those premiums or those drug prices change immediately. And in the interim, I think we can expect lots of questions related to the implementation of the law, of course, as well as some lingering debate around whether certain provisions go far enough to make a difference for people with private insurance, for example, um, and other things, I'm sure. Yeah, Leslie, the Drug price negotiation provisions really promised to be a BFD, to steal the words of uh, (laughs) then Vice President Biden, which he used to describe the Affordable Care Act way back when. Um, So it's been really interesting to see um, another big milestone here. I do want to also mention one other piece related to drug costs, which was a provision focused specifically on insulin. The law now caps the out-of-pocket copay that Medicare beneficiaries will have for insulin to $35 a month. Yeah, and I know insulin is one of those drugs that you'll often hear about when we talk about how fragmented and how confusing the pharmaceutical market is, um, especially as the price of insulin has gone up in in recent years, despite being on the market actually for, for decades now. Yeah, exactly. There have been a number of legislative attempts to address those underlying issues in recent years, but those have stalled or failed. Um, and to be clear, this provision uh, in the law that was enacted does not do that. It doesn't really look under the hood, if you will. Um, so even though the copay is capped, the price of insulin itself may continue to rise, which is a cost that will be borne by uh, Medicare writ large. And the copay cap itself also only actually applies to Medicare beneficiaries. There was an attempt to broaden it um, under this new law, but it ran afoul of the requirements necessary to pass the bill via reconciliation. So a first step here, Leslie, but really just a small one when it comes to insulin specifically. And now, Leslie, with the time we have left, I do want to highlight a third area briefly where our listeners might feel the new law's impact. Yeah, definitely. And I think we'd be remiss if we neglected to mention the climate change provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. So it allocates $370 billion to promote clean energy and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And this amount of dedicated funding is really 
unprecedented, you know, which is notable kind of on its own, but it's ambitious too because it brings the U.S. significantly closer to that goal of bringing greenhouse gas emissions down 50 percent by 2030. And if you look at groups like the American Medical Association, which just took a stronger stance on the issue by officially declaring climate change a public health crisis, it is pretty clear that the healthcare sector is increasingly concerned about climate change. And as much as we've been talking about this new law and framing it around sort of your traditional health policy, I really think it is more consequential in terms of our domestic commitment to addressing both the immediate and the more distal impacts of climate change on our health. So there are a lot of different kinds of tax incentives for clean energy in this law, along with some concessions that maybe people aren't entirely happy about. But there are also direct appropriations for new programs across more than a dozen federal agencies. And this speaks to a level of commitment that we just have not seen before now. Great. So a lot of new resources. Can you give us a, a little sense, a quick sense of some of the activities these agencies might be prioritizing with these new resources? Yeah, so I was really struck by how much of this law is dedicated to addressing the longstanding climate impacts and environmental problems and inequities in communities. And it includes somewhere between 45 and $60 billion in spending for environmental justice, depending on the source. So there's uh, like $3 billion set aside for these new environmental and climate justice block grants to invest in new community-led projects. Um, they're going to be working on mitigating climate and health risks from things like extreme heat and air pollution in our schools and making affordable housing safer and more resilient. And, um, you know, I mentioned before, it's not perfect, as, you know, as some have pointed out, because running parallel to these types of remediation and environmental justice strategies, the law also provides um, continued investment for fossil fuels and these federal tax incentives for carbon capture projects and other technologies that come sort of with their own set of risks when you talk about introducing um, pipelines and other new infrastructure, for example. So it'll be really important to pay attention how these new domestic climate policies are affecting communities to make sure that we aren't making those existing environmental inequities worse. But I do think there's the potential, at least for this legislation, to be really transformative. Great. Well, stay tuned as usual. With that, Leslie, this is probably a good spot to wrap it up. Uh, thanks, as always, for Great. hanging out yeah. and chatting. Awesome. We'll be back next week. To our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, recommend it to a friend or leave a review and tune in next week to another episode of This Week. <laughs>